Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Micah Hill, Media Editor, Dr. Eve Feinberg, Editorial Editor, and Dr. Michael Simone, Interactive Associate and Producer. Welcome to all of our listeners to Fertility and Sterility on Air. This is the August edition, 2021. For those keeping track at home, we're on volume 116, number two. And as always, it's great to have Kurt and Eve on the podcast with us. Good morning, Kurt and Eve. Good morning. Good morning. And we have back this month again our special guest, Pietro Bordoletto, who's both the Interactive Associate in Chief, but today he's representing Fertility and Sterility Reports for the first time as their media editor. Pietro, we're glad to have you with us again today. Hi, everybody. Try not to overstay my welcome, but glad to be here. <laughs> Pietro, we haven't done Fertility and Sterility Reports. Can you give us a quick 30-second summary of what this journal is all about? FNS Reports is really trying to be the place where if you have an interesting case, case series, video, something unique and different that you think should be shared with the FNS readership but doesn't fit classically into the fertility and sterility main journal, FNS Reports is that journal. We'd love to have you submit directly to us. And sometimes if you submit to fertility and sterility and they think it's a little bit better fit for us, you may get sent over to us. And we're being led by Dr. Rick Paulson who has just a ton of experience with the journal itself, but now is really our editor-in-chief and trying to do new and exciting things, sharing some of the images, videos, and stories that you all are submitting on all of our social media platforms. And I'd like to say, I think it is the busiest of the three sister journals. Uh, we, we take pride that we're, we're beating up on FNS reviews and FNS science. <laughs> Sounds like some friendly competition. From an author standpoint, I just want to say that uh, one of my fellows recently sub submitted original science to FNS. It was not accepted, but recommended to be transferred. We made the revisions according to those uh, reviewers, and FNS uh, reports accepted it uh, immediately with those revisions from the original review. So it was nice to see from an author standpoint that the, the system seems to be working well. All right, so on to our on-air podcast. Eve, you're off first with views and reviews for August. Great. Thanks, Micah. The, this month's views and reviews is a little bit different than the typical views and reviews. It was really an enjoyable read, I think a very eye-opening read, and one that I would highly recommend for everybody. The topic was the African-American experience in reproductive medicine, provider, patient, and pipeline perspectives. And this was put together by editorial editor Rick LeGrow with pieces written by Michael Thomas, Samantha Butts, and Gloria Richard Davis. This truly is an absolute must read for anyone in the field of reproductive medicine. This is a collection of pieces that addresses the problems of racism affecting our trainees, our patients, and our future pipeline of physicians. The first piece was titled Making an African-American REI Physician, a Story of Mentorship. This was a personal and very powerful account of Dr. Michael Thomas's journey through training from medical school to residency to fellowship and beyond. Mike, thank you for sharing the raw truth 
It was painful to read, but it was very inspiring. Being a Chicago native, I recognize and I know so many of the people and places that helped to shape you. And I think many of us in the field can relate to the importance of mentors and sponsors, but especially for underrepresented minority students and trainees. And I love the idea of taking on mentees that are different from oneself, as I think the tendency for mentees is to find mentors who are similar. And this challenges the notion and is a powerful read and inspiration of how those firmly planted in the field can help others to grow and flourish. The second piece in this series is called Health Disparities of African Americans in Reproductive Medicine by Samantha Butts. Dr. Butts does a fantastic job summarizing the literature, both start studies as well as single site studies that demonstrate lower live birth rates from ART in patients of African American race. She also discusses how African American patients have a longer duration of infertility prior to seeking care and the challenges of access to care in the African American population. Furthermore, when African-American women pursue IVF, it has been reported that they more often receive care at clinics with smaller IVF volumes and or lower success rates than clinics where white women seek care. Diminished access to high-quality clinical care for African-Americans appears to be part of a pervasive phenomenon contributing broadly to disparities in women's health. The final article in this series is titled The Pipeline Problem, Barriers to Access of Black Patients and Providers in Reproductive Medicine by Gloria Richard Davis. In this piece, Dr. Richard Davis talks about economic and non-economic barriers to accessing fertility services. And these barriers highlight the need for greater diversity in physicians in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. It is also important to address the need for diversity upstream of fertility services through obstetrics and gynecology and primary care providers. It is crucial that we prioritize pipeline programs that recruit and support URM physicians to increase diversity early within the profession. And it is important to realize that efforts to improve the pipeline should extend as early upstream as possible. In the fall of 2020, the ASRM convened a diversity, equity, and inclusion task force to evaluate and make recommendations based on findings to increase diversity to achieve equity and inclusion of reproductive and infertility services for all women. The task force was given two key charges, enhancing opportunities to increase and support diversity and equity, and the inclusion of underrepresented minority population in the profession and leadership of reproductive medicine. Second, reducing and eventually eliminating health disparities in access and outcomes to reproductive care. Dr. Richard Davis also discusses the importance of mentors and that it is important to prioritize a culture of diversity and inclusion while strategically increasing the pipeline of physicians into REI programs. Again, a complete must read for anybody in the field. I found this series eye-opening and we've got a lot of work to do. Eve, do you have any idea on how you think we're doing as a field compared to other fields based on, on reading this? I think we're behind. <laughs> when I look around at my colleagues, I think we're far less diverse than I would like to see us. And when I look at my colleagues in the OBGYN department, um, in our residency program, for example, I think our residency program is far more diverse than the fellowships. And so I think that it really speaks to the pipeline upstream. We have to actively recruit um, 
a more diverse crew of physicians. Yeah, I agree with you. I was putting together an NIH application, and they're saying, how come we didn't have um, uh, minorities in, in reproductive endocrinology? And then we said that the residents are clearly evening out, medical school is evening out, but the fellowships are lagging behind. And it's not just REI, it's, it's, it's subspecialty training, and I think we just have to pay attention to that. I could not agree more. PHR, I'm going to hand this off to you to talk about the fertile battle. Thanks, Eve. This month's fertile battle focuses in on the persistent uncertainty of whether surgical treatment of uterine septum improves reproductive outcomes. In this bicoastal face-off of giants between the groups at Stanford and Thomas Jefferson, both sides take turns convincing us for and against surgical management. Proponents of resection point out that the strong association of septate uteri with adverse reproductive and obstetrical outcomes and the minimally invasive nature of hysteroscopic surgical resection. The dissenting side, however, discusses the recently published multi-center trust trial, which prospectively randomized women to hysteroscopic resection versus expectant management. And they expertly point out that despite eight years and only 80 women being enrolled, there were no differences in live birth within 12 months of randomization. Both sides acknowledge the significant shortcomings in the data and how equipoise is present regarding how to best manage and counsel patients both with poor reproductive histories as well as those with incidentally identified uterine septums. Kurt, with uterine septums being as rare as they are and indications for interventions being so heterogeneous, are randomized trials really the most efficient way at arriving at the truth and resolving this uncertainty? Or are there other ways to design a study that would provide meaningful answers for patients and physicians who are faced with this diagnosis? Yeah, that's a tough one. That's the classic question. Um, we all know that a randomized trial will give you the most unbiased answer, but it has to be feasible and ethical to perform. And you know, standardizing everyone to treat the people the same way or enroll the people in the same way is really hard. So um, I've heard people try to put this study together, uh, and I encourage people to still try. But there are ways of looking at observational data, and we'll talk about it later in the podcast, about how we can try to match people and use propensity scores and things like that. So let's not give up on the topic, but let's see what the experts have to say. Micah, I read a really interesting paper in one of our journals in our field, the Journal of Minimal Invasive Gynecology, uh, written by Stefano Batoki of Hysteroscope fame, in which they hysteroscopically excised the entire uterine septum in block to evaluate the differing histopathology of the different parts of the septum, the apex, the edges. And they found that across all patients, there were pretty distinct differences in collagen, muscles, capillaries, the makeup of the different parts of the septum. And most interesting to me was that the septum actually extended deeper and wider into the uterine walls than what they previously thought. And I thought that was really, really interesting. With this in mind, how much do you think the technique, the instrumentation, the experience of the person performing the uterine septum resection plays a role in the reported outcome that we're seeing for people who are performing these surgeries? That's a great question, Pietro. I, I think certainly surgical experience and volume plays a role in this, just as it does in, in most surgical outcomes. Uh, I would want to see more evidence, though, on like beyond just histopathology for the complete in block resection. Is there differences in gene expression at those edges? Are we actually doing them a favor by, by resecting to that degree? The way I was trained was just to try to avoid cautery and use scissors and 
take it down at the midline until you get to bleeding, and then you hope that you're going to have normal endometrial function at that site. And anecdotally, that seems to work well. But given that we don't even have good data from the RCTs that this is the right surgery to be doing, uh, I don't know that we have great data on how the surgery should be done. That would be a sub-question once we answered the first one. Yeah, I think we need to go back and look at the diagnostic criteria for what is a septum and what was included in the trial. And to me, that's the biggest problem with the TRUST study is that patients who had arguably what we would consider to be an arcuate uterus were included. And so to me, it's not a surprise when you consider the inclusion criteria that a difference was not found because most of those septums that were, you know, less than 1.5 centimeters but greater than one centimeter are not typically septums that we would operate on in the United States. And so I think that probably there's more heterogeneity due to those inclusion criteria. And I think if we were to narrow the inclusion criteria to deeper septums, we would probably see a much greater impact of surgical resection. I think that one of the persistent questions people have who are performing the surgery beyond do I do the surgery or not is do I do I use any kind of intrauterine adhesion prevention? We've all read these small retrospective cohorts of balloons, hormones, antibiotics, even the inner IUDs. There's still so many persistent questions beyond should we do the surgery, yes or no, and if we are going to do it, is there a way to do it safely, especially uh, taking in mind reproductive outcomes and short and long-term reproductive goals. The TRUST trial, while we trusted that it would give us the answer to this clinical scenario, I think it just raises more uncertainty, and we're still looking for the answer. Yeah, those are all excellent points, Pietro, and I think very well, very well taken. Kurt, we're going to turn this over to you to talk about the ASRM pages. Yeah, we're going to make a complete 180 here. Um, I'm going to talk about the three articles in the ASRM pages because I think they're really important for us to understand, even though they're particularly not data-driven. In fact, they're all ethically driven. There are three documents from the Ethics Committee. Uh, one is entitled Financial Compensation of Oocyte Donors. The second one, Access of to Fertility Treatments Irrespective of Marital Status, Sexual Orientation, or Gender Identity. And the third, Moving Innovation into Practice. Now, Listen, this is not a fertile battle here, that there's not a lot of controversy here, but we do need to take each one a little bit closely just so you can take home the take-home points on in, in each. So the first one was the um, compensation of oocyte donors. Um, I think we recognize there's some controversy here, and like all ethical documents, it's not telling us exactly what to do in this situation, but bringing out uh, some of the controversies. So some of the essential points that you want to know about in this podcast, but please go back and read in more depth, is that financial compensation for women donating oocytes is justified on ethical grounds. And compensation is in accord with the principles of fairness, and it is part of a professional relationship. Now, compensation should acknowledge a donor's time, the inconvenience, the discomfort, uh, and importantly, it should not vary according to the planned use of the oocytes. That was what I think struck me the most. In other words, you can't pay a woman more or less for research or more or less for splitting the, the, the gametes. It should be the compensation for the procedure itself. Now, we know that compensation varies from place to place and whether you're using a private compensation or um, a, a practice. And th this committee opinion is not telling us what that compensation should be, but more that if that whenever you have an informed disclosure and informed consent process, the reasons that you got to this number should be fully disclosed. And 
you know, we should have the same professional duties to all of our patients, whether they're donating gametes or whether they're our own patients. And we should always rely on equitable and relationships and fair provision of services. So again, this document is not telling us how much to compensate donors other than do it in a professional, transparent way and recognizing it that it is correct and should continue. Kurt, do they in the article mention a cap on how many times a woman can or should donate oocytes? Again, a really important question, but this just, in this case was outside of the, the purview of this document. They were really focused on compensation. But I think they do tip their hat to that by saying that, you know, women shouldn't be enticed to donate this for money and the compensation shouldn't be the enticement that makes a woman do this more times than she should for her own personal health. Yeah, there's actually a separate document on repetitive oocyte donation that specifically addresses the idea of capping the number of cycles and why that recommendation was set at six cycles. The next document I want to just briefly discuss is the access to fertility treatment irrespective of marital status, sexual orientation, or gender identity. Again, an important community opinion to have. This is an ethics opinion. This is not a political statement. This is just a statement of reality. So the statement explores the implication of reproduction by single individuals, unmarried couples, and pertains to the diverse sexual and gender or cisgender heterosexual persons. The statement is really talking about fertility services irrespective of the reason that you want a child, irrespective of marital status, sexual orientation, or gender identity. So the key points are that there is interest in having children and rearing children for individuals uh, regardless of marital status, sexual orientation, or gender identity. And it also recognizes that for those that don't have the traditional sexual orientation, that ART or our services are the, one, are, are the only way to achieve that goal. What struck me was there was reasonably good evidence to suggest that the development, adjustment, and well-being of children are not markedly impacted by any of these underlying conditions for using treatments to get pregnant. And I think that needs to be brought out. Again, not politicized. This is, this is a review of the best studies available that the children can be happy and healthy regardless of their underlying parents. And finally, the, the document says very clearly that programs should treat all requests for assisted reproduction equally without regard to these individual characteristics like marital status, sexual orientation, or gender identity. We should be treating all patients the same way in the same standards and not be judgmental. Yeah, this seems so fundamental and basic, but I think it's great that it's articulated so elegantly. All right, and finally, the other important document that I hope you pay attention to is Moving Innovation to Practice, an Ethics Committee. This one is a little bit more fluff compared to the hard topics we just discussed, but it is right up my alley. Basically, we understand that there's going to be innovation that comes into our practice, and when we adopt it and how we adopt it and how we charge for it is really quite important and really does represent an ethical challenge. So the key points to this, and I agree with them wholeheartedly, is that innovation is a fundamental element of improving our health care. But clinical research is the essential step in developing these interventions, and we need to really understand what we're bringing to our practice based on good data and well-designed outcomes and well-designed studies. There really should be evidence of safety and efficacy before you start disseminating these new interventions into your practices. And when you do adopt new interventions, you should really consider the generalizability of your research data. What does that mean? If it works in one population, does it work in every population? If it works in one select group, should I, should I give it to everybody? 
We also have to understand when you're looking at new technology about the learning curve and, and do people understand how to do it and are you doing it correctly? If I, if I read a paper about this new tech technique that's really hard to do, can my lab do it the same way and with the same efficacy or do I need to have some training? And of course, ongoing data collection is critical for complete understanding of the benefits, harm, and optimal applications. And I think Mike has set me up with this one as we talk about some other articles uh, in today's podcast on how we're going to actually put this in real-world data. You're right, Kurt. I did set you up for that because I love hearing you talk about this stuff. So that, I thank you for that summary. Sounds like three very good ethic committee documents this month. So we're going to move on now to some of the original articles in the journal, and we're going to start with August's seminal contribution, and it's titled, The Prolonged Disease State of Infertility is Associated with Embryonic Epigenetic Dysregulation. This was a study by first author Denome and senior authors Schoolcraft and Katz Jaffe from CCRM. The objective of this study was to evaluate the epigenetic consequences of prolonged infertility, and so the authors studied 104 surplus euploid blastocysts that were donated by patients specifically for research. They utilized a global methylome analysis plus targeted methylation analysis of imprinting control regions, and they then did uh, messenger RNA studies for gene expression. They looked at patients who had prolonged infertility, which they defined as over three years, and on average these patients had five years of infertility, so a long time. And they compared these to euploid embryos donated by fertile controls. They found that patients with prolonged infertility had aberrations in their methylation on over 6,500 CPG sites, and these represented over 4,000 genes. Not surprisingly, these alterations were localized to imprinting control regions, or ICRs. Finally, they found hypomethylation and decreased gene expression on the KVDMR and MES genes. And these are the genes that we know to be associated with both Beckwith-Wiedemann and Russell's silver syndromes. So the authors conclude that prolonged infertility itself is associated with altered methylome and euploid blastocysts when you're comparing it to fertile controls who have euploid blastocysts. In other words, this appears to be a result of the prolonged infertility or innate to the prolonged infertility as opposed to an effect of ART. So this was a great first study uh, that's looked at euploid blastocysts and compared imprinting based upon time of fertility and time to pregnancy. The data support observational data that we have that concludes that the increased risk of imprinting disorders may be associated with the state of infertility itself and not with the method we use to help these patients achieve pregnancy. And I think that's reassuring data for the field of ART and our patients. And Eve, now we're going to move on to the andrology section. So you are next with our first article in andrology. Thanks, Micah. This next article is titled, Is Increasing Paternal Age Negatively Associated with Donor Oocyte Recipient Success? A Paired Analysis Using Sibling Oocytes. And this was written by Kelly McCarter with senior author Stephen Spandorfer from Cornell. This is a retrospective observational single center cohort study of shared egg donation cycles to investigate whether increasing paternal age defined as greater than 45 years negatively impacts pregnancy outcomes when compared to paternal age of less than 45 years. There were 408 recipients who received oocytes from a split donor cycle from January 2010 through December 2016. 
And I, I just have to say up front, I really love this study design as the eggs were subject to the same doses of gonadotropins, and this really is an elegant way to isolate the effect of paternal age. There were 77 pairs of recipients who met inclusion criteria by using sperm from men in two distinct age groups. The pregnancy rate was 81% in group A and 69% in group B. Um, group A being the younger the younger age group less than 45 and group B being the older age group of older than 45. The live birth rate was 65% in group A and 53% in group B. The rate of pregnancy loss was 19% in group A and 23% in group B. These results though were not statistically significant. The authors then did a mixed effects logistic regression analysis, and the odds of pregnancy were 65% lower for patients in the older partner age group when they controlled for parity and sperm, be it fresh or frozen. The odds of live birth, implantation, and pregnancy loss were all lower, but did not reach statistical significance. There was an excellent reflection to this piece written by Liz Ginsburg and Jenny George from Brigham and Women's Hospital. They note that this study lacked information on semen analyses and that prior studies that have shown adverse impact of age was only in those with abnormal semen parameters. They also note that because the study lacks information on DNA fragmentation, it is difficult to, to understand the driver for adverse outcome. Could it be due to aneuploidy? It's hard to say. Overall, I think this is an excellent study design. It sheds some light on the effective male age and reproductive outcomes, but it is not without limitations. It does add to the literature and is a good counseling tool in setting realistic expectations for couples pursuing oocyte donation with male intended fathers over the age of 45. While males continue to produce sperm throughout their lives, data are emerging that there are decreases in sperm quality and increasing male age is negatively associated with live birth. The recognition of the importance of male age is an important point and one that we'll discuss again on this episode of the podcast when discussing MBA students' knowledge of fertility. Kurt, quick statistical question for you, um, not to put you on the spot or anything, but can you talk a little bit about a mixed effects logistic regression analysis? How do you take something that doesn't achieve statistical significance and then use a different type of regression analysis and then find statistical significance. It's, it's always very quirky. A mixed effects versus fixed effects is how much variation you allow the model to have. Theoretically, the fixed effects is going to have um, less variation, but usually it's the fixed effects that actually tightens things up and allows you to find statistical significance when it's sometimes not there using more variety. Having said that, I have no idea how they managed to do it in this paper. It is a little bit uh, outside the norm, but, you know, hey, sometimes statistics can be quirky. You're not satisfied, Eve. <laughs> no, I was. <laughs> um, I'm always a little bit leery when in straight, using straight statistical tools, we don't find significance. And then by using somewhat unusual tests, we're able to find marked differences. Um so that's a little bit where my where my hesitation comes in. But I think that it's a really difficult topic to study, but I really commend the authors for doing this in such a fashion using that split oocyte donation model. And my hunch is that they're probably onto something, albeit the statistics were a little unconventional. 
Yeah, remember though that the statistics are trying to estimate the, the, the truth. The crude answer is often the most biased and therefore the most, although it sounds intuitive, might be the most quote unquote incorrect. So sometimes when you do control for factors using a logistic regression, you take out some confounding and you actually find a difference that wasn't there. Yeah, I just thought it was interesting that one of the confounding factors were, was fresh versus frozen sperm, and that when they controlled for that, that's when they were able to see differences. I would have liked more in the discussion about that. Yeah, well, that makes sense, though, because if there are differences between fresh and frozen sperm, you have to control for that. And if you don't control for that, you can be misled into a false answer. No, no, I think that's a legitimate point, Kurt. I just would have liked to see that articulated and those differences outlined more in the discussion. And should we be using fresh sperm in older men as opposed to frozen sperm or vice versa? I just would have liked more of an explanation of that. I agree. Transparency, even in your statistics, is important for papers. Fantastic. Great discussion. And so now we're going to move into a couple of our FNS reports articles. And Pietro, we're going to start with you talking about a COVID article that is in FNS reports currently. Thanks, Michael. So in just six short months since the first COVID-19 vaccines went into arms all around the United States, we finally have our first data on the reproductive impact of spike protein seropositivity. In this study, published in FNS Reports, Dr. Randy Morris prospectively enrolled 141 patients undergoing program frozen embryo transfer and quantitatively determined the level of anti-SARS-CoV-2 spike IgG antibodies. They found that a third of patients were reactive for IgG antibodies, and of this third, two-thirds were reactive from vaccination, while a third were reactive from a previous infection. When comparing non-reactive patients to those reactive from vaccine or reactive from infection, they found no difference in implantation and clinical intrauterine pregnancy rates. Micah, the lay public has been concerned about the potential for COVID-19 vaccination to cause sterility. Reports about how anti-spike antibodies may cross-react with syncytin-1, a protein involved in the fusion of cytotrophoblasts into syncytiotrophoblasts, have been largely debunked including by you and Dr. Blake Evans in a really excellent Consider This piece published on our FNS Dialogue website. Micah, how has this paper changed your counseling to patients undergoing ART who are delaying vaccination while they're undergoing ART treatment? Yeah, as we all know, unfortunately, back at the turn of the year, some two authors published a blog post that raised concern that the uh, spike protein was similar in structure to a protein called syncytion 1, which is involved in early placentation and expressed in the placenta. And so they raised concerns that the vaccine could potentially mount an immune response to early placental formation. Uh, and so we undertook our article to sort of debunk that plausibility. So we had nine authors from around the globe who wrote this Consider This piece. We used a tool called BLAST, which is an NIH tool that lets you look at the antigenic epidemic of surface glycoproteins, and using that tool, we demonstrated that the syncytion one and the spike protein from the um, the virus are really aren't that similar in structure. Furthermore, the early pregnancy data that we do have doesn't suggest that patients who uh, had COVID in the past were having an increased rate of miscarriage, and if they were developing a natural immune response to, to syncytion one, we should see that. And so that's why we published our paper to debunk the, the plausibility. We felt like biologically it was very unlikely that the vaccine would cause harm to the placenta. And we know that there is 
harm that's demonstrable if you are pregnant and get COVID. You have worse outcomes than those who are not pregnant. And so it didn't seem to make sense to us that people would avoid a vaccine for a theoretical low risk uh, while taking the real risk of getting uh, an infection during the pandemic. And I think that's consistent with what ASRM has said, where they recommend that people trying to get pregnant should take the vaccine as soon as it's available to them. So my, my counseling is that patients should get the vaccine when they should. Uh, we don't have observational data that there's harm from the vaccine for pregnancy or fertility. And I think the biologic plausibility for risk is low, although we should continue to study that. Yeah, and I just want to interject that we do have data. VSAFE and VAERS, which are vaccine surveillance systems, have published data. It was in the New England Journal back in March looking at pregnancy safety data for women who receive vaccination. So I think that the overwhelming evidence really does not show harm. And as we talked about last month when we talked about the debate on vaccination. Like, I really think that the debate is a moot point and women should get their shot. Great. Thank you, Pietro, for that summary. Get the vaccine when you can for all of our patients that are listening who are not yet vaccinated. That is the overwhelming recommendation. So we're going to stick with FNS uh, reports. And as Kurt said, this has some incredible science that's published in it. I was just looking at the website. They've been live for a year. They have five issues that have been released, over 250 public uh, pages of science and some really good studies. Just looking at what's in press, we have the effect of endometrial thickness on OB outcomes and frozen embryo transfers. We have a nice study from Boston IVF showing that using Toradol during egg retrieval or after egg retrieval reduces narcotic use by 50% and a SART registry study looking at cleavage versus blast transfer. So really good science, uh, really good data that's being published there. The article I'm going to talk about is actually a case report and it is titled Molar Pregnancy After In Vitro Fertilization with Euploid Single Embryo Transfer. So this is a case report from first author Zhao and senior author Alex Quaz from UCSD. It's a 42-year-old patient who underwent IVF. She had fertilization with ICSI, trophectoderm biopsy, and PGTA using a readily available commercial NGS platform. She had six blastocysts that were biopsied, but only one was euploid. It was 46XX, and it had been a one pronuclear embryo on fertilization check on day one. Her initial HCG was 367, and two days later, it was 840. She had her first ultrasound at six weeks, three days, that showed an irregular gestational sac with diffuse echogenic material. Her HCG at that point was 24,000. A week later, the ultrasound findings remained unchanged. The patient was informed that she likely had an abnormal intrauterine gestation consistent with a pregnancy loss. She was given mesoprostol, and the tissue was collected and sent off for genetic testing, and this genetic testing included short tandem repeats. The result came back 46XX, complete molar pregnancy, with a single set of paternally derived alleles confirmed with the use of the SDR testing. Her HCG levels were followed down to less than five. So the authors conclude that this is the first case report of a molar pregnancy following euploid embryo transfer. While there are data that demonstrate that one pronuclear embryos can result in a normal live birth, these embryos should be tested using a strategy that includes the ability to detect biparental inheritance of the DNA. 
The commentary was from Martin and Slim from McGill. They discussed that 5 to 7% of embryos are mononuclear at fertilization check. And for some patients, these may be the only embryos that result in a blastocyst for transfer. They proposed that these embryos should only be transferred if we've both, one, done testing for euploidy, and two, done testing for biparental inheritance. And therefore, NGS platforms may not be adequate to do this. Uh, Rick Paulson, the editor-in-chief of Fertility and Sterility Reports, liked this article so much that he also wrote a commentary on it. His point is that we don't really know the rate of molar pregnancies in ART. Some data suggests that it's higher than natural conception, but some suggest it's the same. This is data that's currently not collected in the SART registry, and he recommended that we maybe consider collecting that data. But he agrees that uh, IVF in these patients should include a way to test for both euploidy and biparental inheritance. And he even suggests that we may be able to add molar pregnancy to the list of conditions that we can avoid with the use of IVF via appropriate PGT testing. So I thought this was a fantastic way to demonstrate how a case report can really lead to an interesting discussion on PGT platforms and testing strategies. If you're a fellow, this is a good article to read and just think about the uh, evolution of this from the standpoint of fertilization and then how our various platforms can detect some things but can't detect other things. Micah, do you think the answer is just we need to be using a different PGT platform, something that is single nucleotide polymorphism based rather than traditional NGS sequencing? I wouldn't go that far and say that's what we should be doing for everyone because there's certainly some advantages to NGS, which is why the field has migrated there. But I think uh, this raises the point that you probably need to consider something beyond just NGS for patients who have a one per nuclear that you're considering transferring. Now, Micah, that's a great discussion. I, I just want to be a little bit careful that while case reports do give wonderful discussions, the fact that we should change our entire practice or platform based on one case report is a little bit scary to me. So, um, you know, we don't know how often these things happen, and I'm glad we talk about it, but wholesale change on one case report makes me a little nervous. So I agree. I don't think we should change our practice based on one case report. I also want to throw out that not every embryo that is transferred leads to a pregnancy, and there are cases where ovulation is not suppressed and couples um, have intercourse around the time of embryo transfer and pregnancy may result, and it may not be the embryo that was transferred that was the embryo that implanted. It certainly does seem to be the case and biologically, with a single pronucleus, you can argue for retention of the second polar body and perfect explanation of how molar pregnancy could have come about. But I also think we have to have a, hel a healthy dose of skepticism at times. I like both of those comments. Very helpful. So we're going to jump back to fertility and sterility and dive into the assisted reproduction section, which has some fantastic articles in it this month. And Pietro, we're going to start uh, off with you. Thanks, Micah. So our next article is actually one that I was involved in as part of the et al., if you will, and body mass index is not associated with embryoploidy in patients undergoing IVF PGT testing by first author Stavesky. We were prompted to study the topic because there's a growing body of literature in mice that obesity compromises developing oocytes in multiple ways, including meiotic abnormalities, impacts spindle morphology, chromosome misalignment and function, so what we did is we reviewed a total of 1,700 first IVF PGT cycles at our center from 2017 to 2020, and patients were categorized as normal weight, overweight, or obese. 
and we found that there were no difference in euploidy, aneuploidy, or mosaic embryo number or proportion in overweight or obese patients compared with the normal weight reference group when adjusting for age, the main driver of aneuploidy. An accompanying reflection of this article by Dr. Elena Hognish from Dr. Feinberg's group at Northwestern astutely points out that our study confirms other small retrospective studies, but highlights that while PGT can capture ploidy status, it's unable to identify other markers of impaired chromosomal or cellular function, such as epigenetic methylation or dysfunctional mitochondria that may influence reproductive outcomes. Furthermore, they also point out that while BMI is a simple marker for clinical studies, it doesn't explain the many metabolic complexities that impact overall health and reproductive potential. Eve, as you know, many practices require patients to achieve a certain BMI before starting ART treatment. Knowing that healthy weight loss can require significant time and that aneuploidy rates increase with the passage of time but not with increasing BMI, do you think it's reasonable to retrieve oocytes in women with obesity at any age but delay the transfer until their health is optimized for conception? I think that's a great question. It's one that we debate wholeheartedly and on a regular basis at Northwestern. And I think it just depends on what is the biggest risk. Is the biggest risk the pregnancy complications associated with obesity or is the risk due to anesthesia and airway issues at the time of egg retrieval? And so I think depending on the practice, depending on the ability to have general anesthesia if needed, I, I think that retrieval in and of itself can be part of the issue. And so for centers that are freestanding, maybe not attached to a hospital, don't have um, MD anesthesiologists for support, I think that it's problematic to have egg retrievals in patients who are class 4 obesity due to airway issues, whereas in, an, in a hospital environment, I think we may have the luxury of being able to do that, but the time issue is real, and the question is really how much of obesity is reversible, and is the damage already done? And I think that we don't know the answer to those questions. I want to point out that we actually do have some data about oocyte retrieval and the safety of oocyte retrieval in high BMI patients. One of my co-fellows here and a co-resident with me at the Brigham, Philip Romanski, has published on this topic quite a bit, and they looked at 1,900 retrievals at the Brigham performed in women with BMI over 40 and found that only two patients, less than 1%, required an advanced airway, like a laryngeal mask airway. There were no patients that required intubation, and those were just for transient desaturations. So while I think that having a center that performs retrievals in hospital is always the ideal setting if you're trying to be very conservative, I think we have data that suggests that taking care of these patients, even in an ambulatory setting, may be safe for these patients, as long as you have providers that are comfortable managing them. I just want to highlight, though, in that paper that the majority of retrievals that were done were done abdominally, which is not a skill that I think that the average REI feels comfortable performing in an outpatient setting. And so I think we have to be really careful about extrapolating data from a hospital-based practice to the general population. Kurt, I have a follow-up question for you. So Dr. Hognish in her reflection points out that BMI is a symptom of many other factors, not a disease in and of itself. And we know BMI can be altered by insulin resistance, thyroid dysfunction, OSA, 
So my question for you is by focusing just on BMI, are we oversimplifying a very complex metabolic situation and missing true associations? And if so, how can we study these better beyond just using BMI as a simple dichotomous variable? Great question, because what you just said is, is well said. BMI really is a construct. It's a biomarker. We, we decided how to measure it this way. And it, whether it's a disease in itself or just a conglomerate of lots of things ending up in this body mass index is really unknown. But I would bet there's a lot of things, just like complex diseases, that uh, contribute to obesity. Um, and uh, it's going to be awfully hard to find a single cure or a single association. But again, I think what a wonderful question. Is BMI a biomarker or a disease? And I don't have an answer for you then. But maybe this will prompt somebody to think about that and write us a great article about it. And if you do, please send it to FNS Reports, where great science <laughs> lives. All right, Kurt, back to you. So I get the privilege of reviewing an article that I, I thought was truly um, a great one to discuss. So this has a lot of points in it. The article I'm describing is titled, The Use of Propensity Score Matching to Assess the Benefit of Endometrial Receptivity Analysis in Frozen Embryo Transfers. And it's done by a wonderful group, mostly out of Boston and Albany, Harry Bergen and Denise Vaughn. Where to start on this? So endometrial receptivity array is a technique that I'm sure now we're all familiar with. It's incredibly intuitive. The fact that, you know, you can send off a biopsy and get a microarray result back and say whether um, you're in or outside the window of receptivity. And it's not only intuitive to us scientifically, it's intuitive to our patients. My goodness, who would not want a personalized embryo transfer? I mean, everybody wants personalized medicine. We discuss this at Penn all the time on how often we should be using this and when we should be using it. And we don't really have a consensus on that alone. However, it is being used, and this is a wonderful paper to describe what is its uh, efficacy in real-world data. Now, clearly, we would like to have a randomized trial that's well-designed to get an unbiased answer, but sometimes um, such trials are rare and expensive, so we have to use observational data. When you use observational data, the biggest death knell is confounding. One confounding is confounding by um, indication. Why did that patient elect to get that, uh, that test in the first place? Because our mind, the computer, often makes very good, more actually sometimes bad, but mostly good decisions about whether this is a good treatment for somebody or not. And pulling that out and getting a, as I said earlier, the truth out of statistical analysis is difficult. So this paper used something called propensity score matching, which isn't often used in reproductive medicine. So usually, if you can collect a lot of information, you can find out if a simple variable like BMI, for example, is associated with getting the treatment and is also associated with treatment outcome. That, by definition, is a confounder. But something like ERA might be much more complex than that. There might be 17 variables that went into your decision-making process on whether someone should get ERA or not. Might be number of transfers, might be age, might be, it might be how hard they pressed you in the consult room. All these things are very hard to control for. So one statistical approach is called propensity score matching, where you make a single variable mathematically that says, are you likely to get this treatment or not? So what's your propensity for receiving this treatment? And then when everybody has a score, you can then match them so that you're only comparing people that had an equal propensity to getting the treatment or not, therefore getting a more isolated answer on whether the treatment itself had a difference in outcome. The problem with propensity score matching is that not everybody has the same propensity, so you're 
by definition, picking only some of the patients out of your whole population, and you have a limited sample size, which again is what happened here. But it does give you a quote-unquote more controlled approach answering the question using real-world data. So I get the, I applaud the authors in Boston for doing this. So now that I've given this preamble, what did they find? Well, they actually found that when using this data in a busy clinical practice up in Boston, that it really had no effect on treatment. If anything, the ERA cycle use had a slightly lower pregnancy rate at around 49% compared to non-ERA testing at around 55%. Now, let me say something here. Because of the propensity score matching, they only took a very good subset of the population, very likely to get pregnant. So this is not the average pregnancy rate in all patients. This is only the, those matched that had good prognosis. They also performed a couple of wonderful analyses to say, well, even though we found no answer generally using ERA to get a pregnancy outcome, let's look at some other ways of cutting the data. What if we looked at, for example, those that had ERA testing that was receptive? Well, interestingly, if you had a receptive ERA and compared to, to someone that was propensity score matched to you, you had practically an identical pregnancy rate. However, even when you had an out-of-phase, quote-unquote, ERA test, it didn't help your pregnancy rate. The pregnancy rate was still modestly lower than normal. So there's no help in that group. They also looked at those that had, they didn't call it this, but what we sometimes call reproductive implantation failure. Did you have three prior transfers or less than three prior transfers? And again, in those two subgroups, there was no difference. So all in all, they could not find any difference or any benefit of ERA testing in real world data. Now, there's a wonderful editorial about this by Alexander Quass and Richard Polson, which reminds me that ERA doesn't mean the same thing to everybody. First of all, ERA could mean earn run average, let's go Mets. But in this case, even though they make baseball analogies, they still point out that small randomized trials, real world data are not adding up to counteract the underlying intuitiveness of this test. This test, unfortunately, is not living up to its hype which you can say by many baseball players. So please read this a little bit more carefully as you do. I think this is a great Journal Club article. It's this kind of work that, that needs to come out in fertility and sterility to hopefully educate our clinicians, change our practice, but do it in an evidence-based way. Yeah, I think this is a really great paper. Um, I think it's very compelling. And I think that the pendulum has swung so far in favor of ERA in some ways. I'm seeing application of it in patients who have not yet tried to conceive and those who have recurrent implantation failure, and I'm just not convinced that the benefit is there. I'm hoping that as more papers come out, that the pendulum may swing the other way and we may move away from doing tests that really haven't been proven to be successful. Something that's so pervasive in our field, this therapeutic misconception that just because we're offering something, we think that there's a value added from it. And this is a great example where we're probably not really changing a whole lot other than your bank account at the end of it. The major problem I have with the ERA test is that most of the time you actually get no new information from it. More than two-thirds of the time, it doesn't tell you anything other than continue to transfer when you've been transferring. So for the average patient, they're not going to get new additional information. And the small subset that do, I think this paper highlights really nicely that it's probably not going to move the needle for them a whole lot in terms of success. Yeah, which is, again is why I like discussing this paper, because I could take off my, my statistical editor hat and I could talk about my clinician hat, which is 
patients want something to be offered. They want an answer. Sometimes they want, they'll pay for reassurance. I don't know how you quantitate those kind of conversations, but I don't think we should be knowingly offering something that doesn't work. I love that discussion. I thought it was great on so many levels. Kurt, I agree with you. I just want to applaud the authors for an observational cohort study. I really felt like they did an excellent job at beating the hypothesis to a pulp from every direction that they could and and seeing what came out at the other end. But I really felt like they interrogated this scientifically very thoroughly, and it's just great data. Quick plug for my fellow Nicole Doyle, who's graduated. Her thesis is the Synchrony Trial, which is on the ERA, a randomized control trial, and she'll be presenting that at an oral at ASRM. So the results are embargoed for now, but come to ASRM in Baltimore and hear the results of that trial. So the next one, uh, sticking with assisted reproduction, is on progestins and their use in IVF. So the article is titled, MPA is a useful alternative to a GNRH antagonist in oocyte donation, a randomized control trial. The first author is Giles. The senior author is our former editor-in-chief, Tony Pellicer, and Bosch from the IVF RMA group in Spain. So this study was a randomized controlled non-inferiority trial of 318 oocyte donors, and it was powered to detect a non-inferiority margin of minus three oocytes using a uh, M- using MPA. They found that there was no difference in the MPA group compared to the control group, which was a uh, conventional GNRH antagonist protocol. And this persisted in the number of eggs, the number of mature eggs, the percent of eggs that were mature, and the fertilization rate. When they looked at secondary outcomes of hormone profiles, uh, both in the serum and in the follicular fluid, the hormone profiles were also similar between the two groups following GNRH agonist trigger. And finally, the clinical pregnancy outcomes were similar between the two arms. So no differences starting from eggs, going all the way to hormones and embryos, and finally clinical outcomes. The authors conclude that medroxyprogesterone acetate is non-inferior to GnRH antagonists in donor oocyte cycles, and it may be more patient-friendly because it's less expensive, it's an oral medication as opposed to an injection. The commentary was from Pertia de Ziegler and Ayube from Paris and discuss how progestins can now be used because we have so many FET cycles where we've disassociated the endometrium from the stimulation exposure. So overall, this is a very well-conducted, randomized trial. This is yet another study showing a patient group where progestins have been demonstrated to be non-inferior to GnRH analogs. I think at this point, this concept has been very well established that you can use progestins in IVF cycles where you're not planning on doing a fresh embryo transfer. So my question for our group here, is anyone actually doing this clinically yet in their patients? We have not yet tried it. I think it's I think the data are really compelling, and I would certainly feel comfortable trying it. I guess my question is on side effects. Um, were the women on progestins more uncomfortable, bloated, feel worse, et cetera, than women on antagonists? Did they report on that? I did not see side effect profile data, uh, so maybe they collected it and are saving it for a secondary article. If so, I hope they publish it, but I did not see that that was available in this data. So I think this is actually an example of our field doing things the right way. There is now, I think, a preponderance of high-quality, prospective, randomized trials looking at oral progestins instead of GnRH antagonists, and all of the trials are showing the same thing, that it works, that it's effective, that it's safe, 
And think about so many other interventions in our field that we kind of did it the other way around, where we started with small case series reports and we brought it out to the to the market and started doing it and are now retrospectively going back and proving that we should continue to be doing it. So I applaud the, the folks that have done the work to really make the case for medroxyprogesterone acetate and other oral progestins and make them more of a, another tool that we have in our armamentarium supported by good prospective data. This goes back to the ASRM pages I talked about earlier. How do you move technology into your practice? We've heard some examples that the ERA is already in our practice and we're trying to perhaps remove it. And now we've heard an example of ways that maybe things can be brought into our practice that might be beneficial. There is one really interesting figure in that manuscript, and I know you can't see it here on the podcast, but if you're reading the article, I really urge you to look at it, where they look at LH levels over the course of stimulation for people receiving a GnRH antagonist versus the oral progestin. And there's a little bit of a wave that happens with the GnRH antagonist, which is interesting, meaning you get a late um, mid-follicular to late follicular bump in your LH, which for some people, they can really take off and ovulate through that, especially DOR patients, older patients, patients who are not really recruiting many follicles. But in the, the medroxyprogesterone group, you have a really nice downward slope of your LH kind of throughout the entire stimulation. And they show that even after retrieval, the LH levels are really suppressed. So for patients who you are concerned may ovulate through things, especially if they've had a previous failure through Lupron or a GnRH antagonist, and you're not planning on transferring fresh, I think the progestin may be a really nice other thing to try for these patients. And obviously this cohort needs to be rigorously studied. We've only done it in really good prognosis cohorts prospectively, but I think it's another potential application for patients. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Pietro. You know, Pietro, you and uh, Luis Hoyos, one of our interactive associates, and I had a discussion on Twitter a couple months ago about this protocol, and we were wondering uh, how effective agonist uh, trigger would be since the progesterone is going to operate a little bit different at the hypothalamus and pituitary than the antagonist would. And it was nice to see for the first time this really clear data that you can use GnRH agonist trigger in these patients. So I like that bonus effect or bonus answer that we got uh, from this article. I just have one final comment, and it's just a pet peeve of mine. I've reviewed about a dozen of these uh, papers that have been published in various journals, and every single one of them calls this the progesterone priming protocol. And I think it's important that we accurately label and title our protocols for the interventions that they are. I think the word priming is meant to sell this protocol that really doesn't need any selling uh, because it is less invasive and it is less expensive for these patients. Uh, you know, this isn't priming any more than giving an antagonist on day six is priming. So this is really just suppression of ovulation. There is no priming. There is no data that shows that you get more oocytes by using this protocol. It's just that it's non-inferior to our traditional GnRH analogs. And on that eve, we're moving back to you with our last article from FNS Reports. Yeah, thanks, Micah. This is actually two papers, and they were published in FNS Reports, and both focus on graduate students. The first is titled, Employee Benefit or Occupational Hazard? How Employer Coverage of Egg Freezing Impacts Reproductive Decisions of Graduate Students. The second paper is titled, Knowledge Gaps in the Understanding of Fertility Among Non-Medical Graduate Students. So this first paper was written by Eden Cardozo from Brown University with senior author Thomas Toth from Boston IVF. And this was a prospective survey study of 171 female graduate students at five different institutions in the Boston area. Women had heard of oocyte cryopreservation, but fewer than 3% 
learned of OC from a medical provider. 63% of graduate students cited professional goals as their primary reason for delaying childbearing, and the majority indicated that OC would allow them to focus more on their career for the next several years. For 59% of the graduate students, the main concern about egg freezing was cost. 81% indicated they would be more likely to consider egg banking if it were covered by their insurance or paid for by their employer. But I think a major key take-home point is that the majority of participants reported they would not change timing of conception based on the presence or absence of employer financial coverage for egg freezing. So I think that the conversations about coercion or dissuasion from having children probably don't apply and that employer coverage for egg freezing may just increase opportunity. The second paper is a paper from our group at Northwestern with first author Leah Bernardi, and I was the senior author on this paper. This study was inspired by an email that I received from an MBA student who reached out to invite me to give a talk on age and fertility to the Kellogg Business School students. I thought it'd be really interesting to assess the baseline fertility knowledge in this group of really smart, highly educated students. So in advance of the talk, we devised a survey to assess MBA students' understanding of male and female fertility as well as the ability for IVF to be successful. We asked them to estimate the success of IVF by age, varying the age of the female partner and the age of the male partner. The mean age of the participants was 29 and a half years old, with over 95% not having children and not actively trying to conceive. So this age is already older than the mean age of American women at first birth, showing that this group of individuals is more likely to delay childbearing. There were several key findings. First, respondents did not know that women are born with a fixed number of eggs and that quality and quantity decrease over time. 10% of respondents thought that women had stem cells in the ovary that allowed for repletion of oocytes. Respondents grossly overestimated the ability to have a child beyond the age of 45. Almost 75% of participants reported that women can conceive using her own eggs at 50 with a range of answers up to 73 years old. The second major knowledge gap was that respondents overestimated treatment success, especially in women over 40. And the third major knowledge gap was how reproductive aging impacts men. Nearly 30% believe that a man's age never impacts reproductive outcome. These data highlight important knowledge gaps in a highly educated group of MBA students, most of whom desire future childbearing but are delaying due to educational pursuit. And there was an excellent reflections to these two articles written by Brianna Rudick from Columbia University. She discussed how the best treatment for age-related decline is prevention and calls for fertility education at the time of grade school sex education. She also calls for annual exams with OBGYNs to have true family planning discussions, not just contraceptive counseling. And I think these are really excellent points and hope that research studies such as these will spark more discussions on a broader level. So obviously a passionate area of interest of mine. And I do think that better education at a younger age and really drilling down the impact of age and fertility will have a profound impact in the way that people think about childbearing in the future. Eve, I'm just curious from your perspective, because you've thought about this a lot, how do you balance patient education without uh, 
instilling fear into patients or trying to drive everyone to freeze their eggs. We have data from both New York programs and Boston programs that show the majority of patients don't come back to use their eggs, even though they seem satisfied that they're frozen. But just on a personal level, how do you balance counseling patients on that without instilling fear or uh, excessive use of egg freezing for everyone? Yeah, it's an excellent point. And I think it's a very, it's a very, um, sensitive issue. The one thing that I will say is the majority of studies that have looked at women coming back to use their eggs has a short horizon. And the other is that the majority of studies that look at the cost effectiveness of egg freezing only looked at the cost effectiveness of egg freezing to have one child. We have some data from Northwestern that looks at the cost effectiveness of egg freezing for having a second child, taking into account the likelihood of secondary infertility. And to me, I think that's really where it's at. If you're going to delay having your first child, you're probably okay up until the age of 40 and then pursuit of IVF, PGT, embryo banking may be able to compensate for some lost time. But the real issue is for women who want more than one child. And so I don't necessarily want to scare anybody, but I also want to provide a realistic picture of, yes, you may be able to have a baby at 40, but you're probably not going to be able to have a second child at 43 or 44. And I think that's where the greatest utility of egg freezing comes in. And that aspect really has not yet been addressed in the majority of studies that have looked at egg freezing. What struck me about this, Eve, was how little the knowledge has really changed. I mean, this was looked at 10 or 15 years ago by SRM. I, I vaguely remember a relatively failed campaign about telling women that they should be careful about their aging, and they, there was a huge backlash against them for saying, you know, how dare you tell me I can't have children when I want to. Um, but even despite that, women still just don't understand the biology. I mean, I was shocked that MBA students at Kellogg, which is a premier business school, thought that women can have a baby with their own eggs up until the age of 73, that that's the oldest. Um, and it was a fair number that really believed that women can have children beyond the age of 50. Um, and so I, I really take the point to heart that we need better fertility education at a younger age. Um, so is it because they are in the so-called silo or are getting bad information, or is it because they're focusing on their career, which is why they're so successful, or they're not focusing on other information? I think, again, and I've, I've written publicly about this, but I think that Hollywood does Americans a disservice. We show celebrities having babies in their 40s and 50s and not disclosing the origin of the egg that they used. And so I think that people look to celebrities who have babies at the age of 50 and they automatically assume that if Janet Jackson can do it, well, then I can too. Um, and so I think that it, it's just a pervasive knowledge gap that spans, um, that spans a lot of different economic and educational classes. I think there's another opportunity here for us as a field. Um, I also remember when the news was showing how wonderful and cute multiple births were. Everybody that had quadru quadruplets and sextuplets were on the news as being how wonderful it was. But that changed. I'm wondering if maybe through our discussing this that we might be able to push back on that, that media perception as well. 
Yeah, I think that's a wonderful point. I know at my own institution, it's been a little bit challenging. I've been trying to, we do seminars for, (laughs) we do seminars for GME on just non-threatening age fertility discussions of reproductive options. And our GME office has been a little bit split on whether or not to publicize this through GME or do we publicize it through alternative channels. And I think it's just, it's a very sensitive subject, but the feedback that we've gotten from our residents and we've had male and female residents attend our informational sessions is they find the information very powerful and they wish that there was more formal education earlier on in their career about age and fertility. And so I think it really is something that probably needs to be taught at the undergraduate medical education level, but I also think that in grade school, when you're learning about sex education, it's a fine balance because we want to prevent pregnancy, but I think we also need to give, we need to give our youth accurate information from a young age. Physicians are such an at-risk patient population when it comes to delaying childbearing. We, We spend the better part of our 20s and early 30s in training, and by the time that's done, and we actually have the finances, the stability, the the luggage unpacked and moved in for for, for sure um, that we start to think about childbearing. And I think education is a big part of it, but then also giving people access. One of the things that's happening at our institution at New York Presbyterian is that they're actually changing the insurance that graduate medical education offers and giving them access to fertility preservation services. So coupling the education with the access for physicians, I think will be huge. And there may be some people who choose to utilize these services and some that don't, but I think giving them the choice and giving them the facts and letting them decide is is, is, is laudable and what we should all be striving for. Pietro, that's a, that's a huge point. It's not only education, unless you have a means of going through this, and usually in medical care, that means insurance coverage, people are not going to do it. Um, you know, someone in their 20s or early 30s is not going to take their um, disposable income unless they're highly motivated. But if it's actually a covered service, they might. Highly motivated and highly resourced, which so few trainees are. Fantastic. Well, that is our last article. So many great discussions today. I encourage everyone to open up the journal and read these articles. As always, we only touch base on a few of them. There's so many uh, interesting studies in the journal this month, looking at endometritis, looking at the effect of uh, long-term Uh, birth control pills on AMH levels, and as always, a couple of video articles looking at uh, giving us insights into difficult and challenging surgeries. So I encourage you to look at the August edition. Also, if you're listening to this in August, August 26 is the next FNS Journal Club Global. For the first time, we'll be bringing on one of our sister journals, FNS Reviews with Editor-in-Chief Ann Steiner. We'll be talking about automation and ART with some global experts uh, that are studying and advancing our field with automation. So I encourage you to listen into that. Kurt, Eve, Pietro, it was great seeing you today and having a discussion on all this wonderful science. It was great seeing everyone as well. And Micah and Kurt, it's been a year since we first recorded our first episode. I think we we trashed our August 2020. That was just a trial run, but we've been at this for a year and I think it's been a fantastic journey and I can't think of better people to run this podcast with. It's been wonderful and I hope to continue it for a long time. It's it's really nice to see how it's evolved from um, 
just reporting to now a real discussion. So, not, Micah, congratulations. Not only are we talking about science, we're talking about social issues. Well done. And, you know, the discussion doesn't end here. This is a short podcast, but if you'd like to discuss with the authors and continue the debate, please go to Fertility and Sterility Dialogue, FertsDirtDialogue.com, where you can continue the conversation well beyond the podcast. Excellent. Thank you to our, all our loyal listeners, and we look forward to talking with you again in September. Have a great August. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect the fertility and sterility family of journals or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Music